So uh, ushers, I need you to get the little um, bears of honey, and uh, we're going to do a little, uh, a little prop um, thing so you remember this morning's talk that I, I unabashedly stole from somebody, but it is a great way of remembering something. So here's what they're going to do. We have uh, six little bears of honey, and uh, they're going to pass around the congregation, and when you get your little bear of honey, you're just going to take a little dollop of it. Um, in fact, why don't we start with me? Somebody bring me a bear of honey. That could have been ugly. All right, so you're just going to take a little uh, dollop of this, put it on your finger here, and uh, you're going to just hold it on your finger, just a tiny one. Don't put too much because you don't want it running all over your arm during the service, all right? And so once you get it on your finger, you're just going to kind of hold it there. Now, while we do that, we're going to need to kill a little bit of time because I need to get honey passed around. So we're going to do um, something called Name That Song of the Summer, right? Because this is how convinced I am that uh, we, can, we have the ability to memorize all kinds of things. And, and I, what's the song that's out now that's kind of the song of the summer? It's some, what's the, I, can't I can't feel my face. Somehow I feel as if the music is not quite what it used to be, but uh, right now it's I love you so much I can't feel my face, right? All right, so now there is going to be, I'm going to, Dean is going to help me out. We're going to play uh, the song of the summer from two years ago, right? And when the song stops, everybody in the congregation is going to sing the stopped line. Don't let me down on this, right? Here we go while the honey comes around. I threw a wish in the well. Don't ask me, I'll never tell. I looked to you as it fell. And now you're in my way. I trade my soul for a wish. Pennies and dimes for a kiss. I wasn't looking for this. How about that? I bet you don't do that in church every day, do you, huh? <laughs> now, see, we have an incredible ability to remember these kind of silly things. Uh, if it's ever struck you what is in your mind, right? And it's not just the song of the summer from two years ago or so. Uh, let's go back like 30. Uh, ready, old people? <laughs> I remember my mother singing this in the kitchen. Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some. You're in church! What is the matter with you people? You don't sing that song in church. This is horrible. All right, and so there was, and it's not just songs of the summer, it's like movies of the summer, right? What's the movie of the summer this year? What's the big one? Mission Impossible. I've seen that everywhere. That's a big one. All right, so there was a big movie in the summer of 77, I think. Anybody? It, it kept all of us out of the water. Jaws. All right, so we got this picture here, right? And so here's, Cap here's Captain Brody. Now, if you know this movie, right, this, here comes one of the all-time classic lines. He backs up. He's just seen the great white that has come up out of the, the, the water. And he backs up into the ship's helm, and he sees Quint, the captain, and he looks at him, and what does he say? Who remembers? You're going to need a bigger boat, right? How do you remember all that? 
right? There's one miscellaneous movie line from something 35 or 40 years ago. I show you a picture, you're going to need a bigger boat. We have this capability to remember all kinds of things. I can remember my high school girlfriend's telephone number, 5840302. She might be watching online. This could be very awkward later on. I can almost recite every line of dialogue from Christmas Vacation. Now, I'm not particularly proud of any of these couple of things, but they're in here. I don't know why they're in there. I haven't called 5840302 since 1984, but it's in there. Joan, I swear, I have not called 5840302 <laughs> since 1984. The truth is, I, I wish I had been trained or taught to occupy these memory bits with something other than what Cousin Eddie said about his dog's snots, you know what I mean, at the Christmas table. I could tell you what that was, too. In Jesus' day, in the first century, when he was walking around, the world he lived, especially for, for the Jewish people, memorizing, using their memory, training their minds to understand their people's history and what God's word was for them, was of paramount importance. There was no internet, there was no television, there was no books, there was no radio, there was no printing press. So if the children of the Israelites were going to understand who they were, what their story was, what God had done from them, what his commands were, they had to use their memory. In fact, there was a first century Jewish historian named Josephus. Josephus' quote about the, the Israelites were this, above all else, we sing summer songs. No, it wasn't. He said, above all else, we pride ourselves in the education of our community. And it was because they believed that, and this was true, that their people, God's people, were one generation removed after being persecuted, especially from being persecuted and suffering. They were only one generation from being extinct. And so, how do you in the first century Israel memorize your people's history and the scriptures? Well, in the day of Jesus, the Israelites, and to this day, still believe that God had spoken to Moses, and he had given them the first five books of the Old Testament directly. The same first five books that you have in your Bible with you this morning, or maybe home on your coffee table. And those five books put together had a name. They were called the Torah. And for the Israelites, the Torah had unparalleled value for them. It was used in their daily lives. It contained not just the history of their people, but it, it was for them. They believed that God loved them so much that he had chosen them above all others in such a fashion that he had revealed in the Torah, in these first five books, how then they should live. Now, for them, it wasn't just about learning laws or commands. It was, it was uh, believing that God had laid out how to live your life, how life works, how, how to, to exist. Sometimes the, the Torah was actually referred to as the way. This is the way of life. And so to make sure the teachings got deep into every little girl and every little boy in their nation, they would begin to teach all their kids the very words of the Torah beginning around the age of six. And just like today, right, you know, if you, if you my, my daughter is studying to be a teacher, Common Core is a big, big issue today, right? You know, what age, what should be studied? And it was the same thing going on in Judaism in the day. How do we, when are our children prepared to learn the Torah? We have to get this right because it's that important. There was lots of debate about when and how and what to teach. What was the right age? This first stage of learning the Torah took place in something that was called Bet Sefer, in fact, look at this quote from the Talmud. This is a central rabbinic document of the day. 
Here's what their take was on how we teach our kids is, before the age of six, don't accept pupils. From that age, you can accept them and stuff them with the Torah like an ox. That's how important it was. Now, how do you get a six-year-old child, have you had a six-year-old child, to memorize every word of the first five books of the Bible? to be excited about it, right? To come to school every day wanting to know. Well, they did it the same way we would do it. And so when a kid entered Beth Sefer in Jesus' day, when he got to school, he was given a slate that he would, he, would, he would use, and the rabbis would smear all over the slate honey. And they would begin to wipe around the honey with their fingers, and they, they would trace letters of the Torah onto their sheet. Now, in that day, there's no... Hershey's syrup, you know, there's no Tootsie Pops. Honey, honey was something else. I mean, it was a sign of God's favor. It was a sign of blessing. It was treasured. It was pleasurable. If you had honey, I mean, that, that, was, that was the richest affair. And what the rabbi would say after he smeared it all over their plates, he would say to the children, now he would say, children, lick the honey off of your slate. Do that with me. And they would say to the children, may the words of God be like honey on your tongue. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3 says this, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. So as a child, they're being introduced. Nothing is more enjoyable than taking the word of God and putting it deep into their being. Almost every kid in the town you're in growing up, they know their story. It was a common story. It was a shared story. It was their story. They knew the Torah well and deep, and they valued it, and they appreciated it. But not unlike the situation we see in the garbage dump, once a kid got to be about 10 years old, Bet Sefer was over, um, the Torah had been stuffed into him like an ox, and for most of the kids, they were taken out of school, and it was, for time, it was time for them to go to work in the family business, whatever that was going to be, uh, whatever their ultimate destiny, destiny would be to fulfill. It could be farmer, it could be fisherman. But by the age of 10, school was over for most of the kids. That is unless you were the best of the best. Because if you're really the best and the brightest, well, then they wouldn't send you home. They would move your head. And if you were the best of them, you continued your schooling in something called Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud. Now, translated, that means the house of learning. And the house of learning for a young Israelite, I mean, this is like, this is, this is the big deal. You get into Bet Talmud, you're something. And that would last from ages 10 to maybe 14 or so. And over those years, those four years, a kid that made that cut, they didn't just learn the Torah, but they studied, they questioned it. They memorized every book, not just of the Torah, but of the entire Old Testament. Every word of the entire Old Testament. They were the best, they were the brightest, and everybody in Israel knew it. These kids could do it. They were the exceptional ones. They were the ones, you know, I was trying to think, I was always writing this, what's this akin to? This is like getting your kid in Del Barton, right? Like, do you know people who have kids in Del Barton? I'm sure there's folks that are here out there have kids in Del Barton. It ain't easy to get your kid into Del Barton. These are the best, and these are the brightest. In Israel, well, let me, let me go on. At the end of Bet Talmud, not, like at, not unlike at the end of four years at Del Barton, something happens. You have to send out some applications 
if you know what I mean. And the applications aren't the online common app back in Jesus' day. The application was that you would apply in person now to follow a rabbi, to be his disciple. Now, in Israel, you need to understand, it's not like pastors today. Nobody, no, there is no parking spot for the pastor out in front of ShopRite. You may have noticed that says, reserved for our town's pastors. But in Israel, for rabbis, it was a different deal. It was the most esteemed position in their society. It was revered for the best of the best of the best. And in the end of Bet Talmud, probably around the age of 13 or 14, what you would do is, after having studied and known it inside and out, you would go to a rabbi and you would apply and say, Rabbi, I know the scriptures. I believe in you, Rabbi, and the way you teach. And I would like to be your disciple. Now, each rabbi, he would have a different interpretation of those first five books of the Torah. How he understood them and what they said. Specifically, what, what those books meant and how you were to live them out. This is still true today, right? For example, when the Torah speaks of, of Sunday Sabbath, the rabbis would discuss, well, does that mean you can drive a car on the Sabbath? Or, or does that mean you could go grocery shopping on the Sabbath? Or, or does that mean you can't even leave your house on the Sabbath? And you would ask your rabbi, how do you, rabbi, how do you interpret this law? And the interpretation of that law, what was added to it or taken away from it, was called the rabbi's yoke. And the rabbi's yoke was very, very important to him. It was his legacy. It was, the question was, is your yoke going to endure? Is your teaching going to carry on? So rabbis cared a lot about their yoke. And each rabbi had one they wanted to perpetuate. By the way, Jesus, a first century rabbi, he had a yoke too, right? Do you remember in the Bible? He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. See, Jesus is this first century rabbi. Learn from me, because I'm gentle and I'm lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so these rabbis took so seriously the issue of taking on a disciple. This was a big deal. And when you came to them and you asked to, to apply to follow them, to be like them, they would question you like crazy. How many times is the word stone in the book of Genesis? And these kids could do it. 22. I don't know if that's right. I'm just coming up with it off the top of my head because I don't have it memorized. Because each rabbi, all he wanted was the best of the best of the best of the best in all of Israel to be his follower. And most kids didn't make the cut. Now, if you didn't make the cut, you know what the rabbi would say at the conclusion of your interview. If you did make the cut, if you made the cut, do you know what the traditional language of the rabbi was when the rabbi said, you were worthy of make, being my disciple? Come, follow me. I've accepted you. I believe in you. You have what it takes to be just like me. Have you ever got a rabbi to say those words about you? I mean, it was like getting, you know, the fat package from Princeton in the mailbox. It was the acceptance of all acceptance letters. I mean, you made it. You were the best and the brightest. You were going to get to follow your rabbi everywhere. You weren't going to just have to learn any more thought knowledge. You were going to learn what he did and how he did it. And if a rabbi ever said to you, come and follow me, you would leave everything. 
to go and follow the rabbi. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You had made it. The rabbi believed in you. Your life was never going to be the same. You would do anything for those words. You would leave your home. You'd leave your family, your friends, your job, your town, your synagogue. Come follow me, and you would follow the rabbi anywhere. But for most of them, they didn't hear come follow me. For most of them, the ones that the rabbis had dueled with and gone back and forth with, they would likely say, my son, you do know the Torah. However, at the end of the day, I'm not choosing you to be my disciple. And he would have familiar words that would be like the small letter you get from Princeton. I didn't even bother to apply to Princeton, but it would be like the small letter I would get from some mediocre state school. The one that would say, your grades are good, your SATs are impressive, but you're not really for us. And so what would happen then is the rabbi would say to them, go and apply your trade. Go back to your family and do what your family does. You're not the best, you're not the brightest. Go apply your trade. Time to go home. See, there was no safety school. It was just the family farm or the family fishing business. Now, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, right now you're probably saying to yourself, what does any of this have to do with conversations? I thought we were talking about conversations that Jesus had with people on the streets, real street-level stuff, you know, not just what he was doing in the temple. What does this story have to do with any of that, or, or at least with Guatemala? What's it have to do with Guatemala? But here's why. Because if you know the backstory of a conversation we're going to talk about, if you know what went on before the star story started, this story not only makes sense, but it will come alive to you in ways that it never has. It did for me in Guatemala three weeks ago. So here we go from, from Luke. On one occasion while the crowd was, preached, was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon said, Master, oh, come on. You're a good preacher, but I don't think you know much about fishing. It's the middle of the day. Master, we did that all last night. We got nothing. But nevertheless, at your word, I'm going to let down my nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Interesting sidebar I saw in Guatemala. Same fishermen, same boat, same net, same lake, worst time of day to be fishing, only difference, Jesus is in the boat with them. Same situation, same life story, same pain, same isolation, same disappointment, same frustration. The only difference in the story could be, is Jesus in the boat with you? And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And, and they came and they filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and he said, depart from me because I am a sinful man. There's always a reaction when man gets a glimpse of God, the holiness of God. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to him, Simon, don't be afraid, because from now on, you're going to be catching men. 
And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Matthew describes the same scene a little quicker. He says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Peter and Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Let me ask you a question. Why are Peter and Andrew fishing? Because they're plying their trade. They didn't make the cut. They weren't good enough. And they were sent home. They weren't the best of the best of the best. They were the JV team. They were the temple rejects. And they were plying their trade. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Why do they drop their nets? Because a rabbi thinks they're good enough. You would drop your nets so fast. We read this and we think that Jesus is calling us from our nets. You and I would drop our nets so fast the rabbi thinks you're good enough. The rabbi thinks you can be like him. Your rabbi, when he's in the boat with you, everything changes. They knew who he was. He'd been going around the town healing. They'd been going around the town doing miracles. They had just seen what he had did, what, done with the fish. And they look at him and go, you want me? Me? You think I'm good enough to do what you do? And they drop their nets. And they follow him. Matthew goes on, he says, and going from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, his brother in the boat, with Zebedee, their father. He, they were mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boats and their father and followed him. And we've, we've taught this over the years, right? Like Jesus walks up to people, and he gives them kind of that like Vulcan eye thing, right? And the people just drop their nets and go, Jesus, that's not what's going on. The JV guy called up the varsity. The rabbi believes that they can be like him. That they can do it. That they have value. That there's something. Now if you get this teaching, it has profound impact on what Jesus' disciples are up to the whole rest of the Bible. Where they're going, what they're doing, what they're asking Jesus. Let me give you one more example of this. It's so powerful. It's from Matthew. It's a story you're familiar with, but you're going to see it differently now. Matthew, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out and he was walking on a lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on a lake, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Jesus, their rabbi, immediately said to them, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, and he caught him, and he said, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Two things that you need to know about this story, because it's mistaught and misunderstood all the time. The first is this. Peter is not the failure in the story. Peter's the only guy that got out of the boat. He's the only guy that has ever experienced what it's like to walk on water. We've talked about that one. But how about this? When he did get out of why did Peter say, 
Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Why would Peter say that? Because Jesus was his rabbi. And disciples do what their rabbis do. And when you see your, your rabbi walking on water, what do you do? You get out and you walk on water. Peter wanted to do what his rabbi did. He wanted to be trained in it. But something happened, which is even more intriguing if you get it. Now, there's two recordings of rabbis, as I understand it, in, in all of Jewish history, that instead of following the usual practice where they just pick the best and the brightest, where they actually just go out and choose people. Jesus is one of the two rabbis that we know of that chose disciples, that didn't come through that best of the best process. And so in that moment on the water, when he says to Peter, come, what's he saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, come. You can do this. Come on out. I believe in you. But something happens to Peter. And as it's traditionally taught, he loses faith and begins to sink. But Jesus, understand what's going on. Jesus is not sinking. Jesus is still walking on the water. It's Peter that's sinking. Jesus is likely still calling out, Peter, come. So the question is, who did Peter lose faith in? Peter lost faith in himself that he could actually do it. Maybe he had been told it so many times from the time he was a kid. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not bright enough. And the minute the wind kicked up, Jesus is saying, come. Peter lost faith in himself. And this has profound implications for you and I in our lives, the way we conduct ourselves at church and at school and in our neighborhoods and in Guatemala and at Pine Ridge and in Morristown as we lead small groups, as we teach in Sunday school, as VBC goes on upstairs. One writer said this, I've always been taught that it was important to have faith in Jesus, and it is, but apparently Jesus has faith in me. To Peter and to you and to I, Jesus out on the water says, I wouldn't have called you. Jesus takes no pleasure in pulling people out of boats to sink. I know you were part of the JV squad. I get that you went to a state school. I know you don't, every, don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. I'm aware of you did with what you did with that guy or that girl. I know what you posted. I saw what you recorded. I know what you stole. I've heard what you said. And now come. You. Come out of the boat. Come out here on the water. Because I believe you can do it. Your rabbi believes you can do it. He has great faith in his students. You remember later on, Jesus looks at them and goes, you guys are going to do even greater things than I do. Listen to me, if you went to Guatemala over the last couple of weeks or not, I've been asking everybody, especially in Guatemala, to listen to what God was saying, to ask him to speak. And so this morning, I just want to tell you what he said to me. But for each of us, all of us, that maybe sometime have been told in your life, you don't quite measure up, you don't quite know enough, you're not quite, enough, you're not quite good looking enough, you're not quite thin enough, uh, you're not quite smart enough, you don't have quite enough money. If you ever heard that you're not the best of the best of the best of the best, you need to know your rabbi believes in you. He thinks you can do it. 
you think you can be just like him. When I was in Guatemala, I was having a rough week down there. Lots of stuff. And, uh, you know, when you do this for a living, when you're a pastor for a living, um, you know, uh, I have my own sin issues that I'm dealing with in my life, and sometimes they get the best of me. Um, and uh, the problem with being a pastor is I'm not only dealing with my own sin issues, I'm dealing with yours. And uh, sometimes yours really get the best of me. And uh, uh, sometimes, you know, I mean, if I'm honest, uh, I, 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 sometimes it's like, Lord, you really want me to do this? Like, this seems kind of silly sometimes, God, because I feel like sometimes I'm, maybe I'm not the right guy. Sometimes I, you know, sometimes it seems like maybe I'm, I'm not preaching good enough or I'm not teaching well enough or we don't have enough things set up this way or that way. And I, I was just having a real hard time down in Guatemala. So when I was telling everybody that week, when you go out there in that garbage dump, you listen for God. Ask him to, to show you what you want an answer to and believe it. And we went out and we talked about believing that God would meet us. And, and so we went out um, and, and we took um, Gladys and Edgar with us. It was or excuse me, just Gladys, who runs the ministry down there. And, and uh, Gladys said this was the hardest, when we got back, she goes, that was the hardest prayer walk I ever went on. And Gladys has been on 10,000 prayer walks. And we went to the first house, and uh, at the first house, there was a man there, and he, it was about 8 million degrees in there, dirt floor, and he had a fire going. And, uh, I mean, it was insane. And, uh, you know, you just see immediately, everybody's, like, trying to get to the other side of the house, and the sweat's pouring off them. And this guy just starts weeping. He is a deeply broken man. And uh, he, he said, you know, God doesn't accept me anymore. God doesn't want me anymore. I know he would forgive me, but I just I can't go to him. Uh, I, I, and it, it seemed as Gladys tried to explain to me what he was and who he was, he might have been involved in some kind of a mob thing at one point in his life, and he might have done some bad things to some people. And he said, I'm still under threat. My life is under threat here. And, and as I talked to him, he literally could not stop crying. At one point, he got down on his knees weeping, just such a broken man. And the more we talked to him about coming to God, the more he would cry. And we were in there a long time. And, and we left, and it was a heavy, heavy scene. And then we went to the next house. And at the next house was a woman that was pregnant with her either her ninth or tenth child. And uh, there was something not right with this woman mentally. You could tell that she, she, she could barely speak. And... Uh, as we talked to her, Gladys was trying to talk to her in Spanish, and she couldn't really respond to her. And, and it seemed clear to me that, that something was wrong. There was a disability issue here. And part of me started, saying, started thinking to myself, who keeps getting this poor woman pregnant, doing this to her? And we couldn't even talk to her. And so we left, and that, that was a hard one to go to. And then we went to the, um, the town leader's daughter's house. And she was home, and I think she was 19 years old. We came in, and... Uh, we said, hey, we're here from the United States, and, and, and we'd like to know your story. And she said, I don't, I don't really want to talk. And so, uh, so, you know me, I started talking. And uh, I said, hey, I said, you know, I understand you're the town leader's daughter. I said, my kids, I had two of them with me. I said, my kids, I'm kind of a leader in my community. My kids, you know, I know it's not tough. It's tough being, being having your, your, your mom be the town leader. Is it tough? She said, yeah, it's hard. And I said, how come? She said, because my mom's not around a lot. And... Uh, I said, well, I said, uh, what can we do? How can we pray for you? She goes, I don't want you to pray for me. Well, I've never seen her. I've been on a million prayer walks. I don't want you to pray for me. And so we left the house, and uh, Gladys is looking over at me like, wow, this is quite a string that uh, we're on. And we had some new folks who hadn't been to Guatemala before, and I'm going, wow, this is usually a better experience than this. And uh, we went to the last house, 
And you walked into that house, and you just felt, it was like the air was different. And this woman just had, like when she spoke, she had a lightness and a song in her voice. And I just looked at her, and I, I didn't even need to ask, but I looked at her and I said, why are you so happy? Do you have a picture of this woman, Dina? I said, why are you so happy? And she said, because I have a living God in my heart. And by the end of the conversation, I had nothing to pray for her for. Like, I felt silly asking what I could pray for for her. I needed her. I said, would you pray for us? And she prayed for us. And, uh, and we walked out. And she, she, it was the happiest woman I, I ever met. And I stopped. And I had my two younger kids with me. And I said, I need you to understand something, you guys. This woman, her husband had left her because she wasn't able to have children. She only survives based on if her daughter gives her stuff. She goes, but God provides for me. I don't have a job, but God provides for me every day. And I looked at my kids and I said, you need to understand something. Same situation, same town, same community, same garbage dump. Jesus is in the boat. And it made all the difference in the world. And when I got home that day, I started to think to myself, what have I heard from God? And what I heard from God was, John, the only, I have given you the opportunity to share with people the only thing that makes a difference in the entire world. What are you thinking to think that you're not good enough? What are you thinking to think it doesn't matter? Your rabbi believes in you. Madam Hills, your rabbi believes in you. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as they do, I just want to close with a prayer for you. Close your eyes, would you, for a second? May you be a people. Maybe tired from doing the same thing over and over again. Maybe tired of religion. Maybe tired of chasing God. Uh, from place to place. May you be a people that this day, as he climbs in the boat of your normal existence, and he says to you, put down your net again, try it again. May you be a people that say, I know it makes no sense, but with you in the boat, Jesus, nevertheless. May you understand that everything changes when you get Jesus in the boat. Every circumstance, it might be the same, but the results are different. The truth is, and maybe even you're starting to feel it here in our crowded space, that if you live like this, if you get Jesus in the boat with you, you're going to need a bigger boat. And may you believe in God that he is good and right and holy and just. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. But may you be a people that believes in God because he believes in you. And may you have faith in Jesus, a faith that leads to repentance and salvation, but may you embrace the idea that Jesus has faith in you. Go and be like